Hello, welcome to Mediation Station. This is your host, Greg Fenton. Each week we explore topics and ideas related to the experience of people with conflict and look to promote the profession of conflict resolvers. We are available to connect with at greggf at primus.ca and 647-227-4734. Visit us at our Facebook page to like us and Facebook group page to become a member. Also visit YouTube channels for both CHHA 1610 AM and Greg Fenton. Listen to podcasts of each radio show by visiting either of SoundCloud.com or iTunes Podcasts under Mediation Station in the Arts Area. We have a Twitter account that is at Fenton Mediation, so follow us. Our topic tonight is called Trauma-Informed Care in Conflict Resolution with our visitors, Joanna Stephan and Joni Cass. We're going to talk with our two visitors. We have Jay and Jay here tonight, Joanna and Joni. Hello to the two of you. Hello, Yodala. Hi. Good evening, Greg. Thanks for having me. Yes. So, we're live, we're in person, and people are imagining. So, who was the J? You're Joanna. How about you speak first about your own professional background, and then we'll transition to the elf, otherwise known as Joni. Or is it the other way? Joni known as the elf. Well, you know, at this time of year... Yeah. It's, you know, Hanukkah's coming. Yeah. And that's how I first became the elf, when you uh, described my my inaugural... E- entrance? Entrance here through, through the, window. the window. And saying, I crawled in through the window uninvited and refused to leave. And, <laughs> oh, it's a, a, the Hanukkah <laughs> elf. And so I just went with it. And now it's a very big part of my identity, I will have you know. The power is in self-identifying. Yes, indeed. You know, but you identified me, but I interjected it. I I embraced it. You have ownership of that. Yes. Just like you do with all the other stuff that Absolutely. we engage with or that anybody engages you with. But you're the one who came up with that spark of an idea. And uh, thank you for going with it. Yeah. Well, I'm happy to. It's, it's at least, what, three life. years? It's five years, wow. my dear. No, four years. Four years. Because it was December 2015. It see, it's so good that it seems short. I know. Yeah. The time has just flown by. Yeah. Yeah. And okay. I'm happy to be the elf. Thank you for taking that uh, responsibility. It's a, you know, it's a heavy mantle of responsibility, but yeah. somebody has to do it. Well, just don't, make sure you don't get on a mantle. Because I don't know about Elf on the Shelf thing here. Yeah, I'm a little, I'm a little cumbersome for that. I have no, uh, I'm not alluding to anything. I'm just saying, hey, precarious. It can be precarious I to know. try I to find a balance. I don't see a mantle anywhere. Well, see, don't try and find one. There is none. <laughs> Thank you. So, Joanna, starting with you, how about you share some uh, particulars about your professional background? Well, Joni and I actually met uh, through our workplace. I'm a trauma responder that works uh, within organizations, just like Joni is. I've been doing it for a very long time, so almost 20 years. And basically what we do in in organizational work, basically we are providing psychological first aid when there's tragic events that happen in the workplace. So we'll respond to anything from uh, death of an employee um, to a workplace robbery. Uh, to illness and anything in between. Okay, well, that. we'll unpack that more after. Mm-hmm. How about Mr. Elf Joni? Oh, well, <laughs> me, yes. Um, it's so funny because I haven't been doing 
this for very long at all, even though I've been on the books on the roster since 2011. So um, I'm a social worker by profession, and I worked many, many years in the hospitals, as your listeners know. And um, then I became a mediator in 2015 and had to find self-employment because hospitals were killing me and I was already on the roster for this uh, employee assistance program and started taking cases. And then I met Joanna and it was kismet. We were kindred spirits. It was, and I had already taken a conflict resolution course. So we just, I, I just haven't had as much experience in that, but um, We definitely. got on like a house on fire. Well, hopefully. And then we could come and help with the people afterwards. You mean you create, (laughs) you don't create those kinds of... No, we don't. No, you you respond to those situations. Yeah. And the people experiencing those situations. Yeah. So what types of things impacted each of you to decide to do this kind of work, this type of work? Joanna. Um, I'm a 70s child, so in the mid-70s, going into the 80s, there was the Lebanese War, and then I'm from the former Yugoslavia, so then there was the war in Yugoslavia, and that's something, even as a child, that fascinated me. Why do we as humans uh, need to be so violent? So this is something, even as a five-year-old, uh, this is something that my parents had to keep uh, discussing and explaining, keeping me away from the TV. So as I grew older, it was a natural progression to understand why why we think the way we do, why are there certain belief systems, what brings us to peace as well as violence. So those kinds of questions always fascinated me. Um, And throughout my work, Mm -hmm. it's been to do in some way or form of bearing witness, of of traveling with my fellow human. so that's what motivates me most in this work always, even though it's changed and evolved. But And so how has it changed or evolved? Why do you still remain within that? I, when I first started in psychology, there was a lot of, and we've discussed this with Joni because social work gives a much broader perspective. And when I started in psychology, it was much more about individual based, like how do your cognitions impact your life? How do they impact your decision making? Uh, you know, the positive attitude is all you need. It was much more around, um, looking at certain symptoms, almost like anxiety and depression and trying to mitigate those instead of looking at. So I started from there and how does an individual mind work and then went a little broader into sociological stuff. And now I'm I'm looking at it more in terms of more of a political. Uh, So that's how I've expanded and grown as I've been um, exploring and learning. Uh, So this is where I'm at now, where I think policy have real big impacts mm-hmm. on people's lives, uh, not just the individual work of, of therapists or agencies. Right. I mean, when you say policies, and we'll transition to the elf in a moment, <laughs> it's like the creating the conditions and how human beings have to live within that are not necessarily inclusive mm-hmm. of their individuality mm-hmm. and those lived experiences. Yeah, it's, I, I'm finding it very fascinating that you and I, Joanna, are. I keep finding these commonalities between us because what I wanted to talk about in terms of what, what brought me about to this work is I think really being a child of Holocaust survivors 
and having it deep in my DNA, this trauma that happened not just to my parents, but to a whole generation of people in the world. And um, there's something very, very deep in me that yearns to bring some balance, to heal some trauma, to help heal trauma, to, to bring peace, to bring some kind of, to fix something in a way. I know I could never prevent or fix that enormous thing, but what I can do is just person by person in my, the way I show up in the world is to, is to somehow bring some healing to that. And I think that I need that in order to live in this world. So what do you see as the purpose of the work that you do? What's the intention? What's the goal? I think I just said it in answer. You know, say it again. Yeah, say it again. Just in a succinct way. I think for me, it's just that I feel like my purpose on this earth is to bring light and healing wherever I can. Well, that's about you. So isn't there another intention with purpose? Because it's not all about you. You're not going through the trauma, per se. There's someone with whom you're working to assist and support. So what's the purpose that you see for them? What's the purpose I see for them? Yes, as per doing the practice of working with the trauma. Um, What's the goal for them? For them, just to have someone, someone there who will listen and, as Joanna said, bear witness without judgment and will hold a space for them a containment for them when they don't feel able to um, function the way they need to and hold that space and allow them to express what they need to express and and provide some some love and compassion and help them be aware of their own healing capacities. And Joanna, what would it be? And I just want to piggyback on that because regardless of how much we've learned, which is amazing, I, the educating yourself, learning is, is so very important. Um, because that information you can transfer, um, to the people that we're speaking to. But number one, after all is said and done, there is no healing without feeling understood, without feeling really, truly heard. And how can there be healing if those around us don't want to see or don't want to hear that pain? There can't be a transformation. There can't be a real, authentic type of discussion um, without that peace, right? Okay. You know, how has this type of work affected or impacted your mindset in doing the work? I'm sure over time, when you first started, especially you, Joanna, been doing it for at least 20 years, that there's a different mindset in terms of how you've first approached it to now how you do and how you, you know, you walk through this stuff. Oh, definitely. I... When I first started this work, I was so concerned about making sure that I had everything, that I said things perfectly. I'd go over things that I might have missed. I'd try so, so hard to, to not 
we know we we can't save people in this profession, but I just wanted to give so much hope and inspiration. Um, and then you find out that no, to be more loose. Um, and again, all this knowledge is so helpful, um, especially because and Joni and I talk about this a lot, and and it'll in conflict resolution, it'll be huge, as huge as it is in any um, type of service we do with clients, is that you find out the knowledge you have is most powerful in the way you choose to ask the questions given what the client is presenting you with. The exquisiteness of those questions. And we were talking about this before, if you can talk a little, when we were saying how much more talking we used to do. Um, and you were saying that. Yeah, absolutely. Especially when I was a social worker in hospitals. I did a lot of talking. So and much talking. Yeah. And you know what? I, I was pretty good. Because we want to share worker. all our information. Yeah. We're like, we have all this information on your nervous system yeah, and this and is everything. how your brain works and this is what toxic stress does to your brain and we'd want to what, give what are you all trying to it. do create them as counselors <laughs> as well? I, I don't know but we we had a lot to offer and you know i i think we were probably both very good practitioners and helped a lot of people i know i helped a lot of people in the hospitals but it really took for doing the the dispute resolution training and and role plays and practices and really and then doing actual work with clients to really understand how important and as you say exquisite the questions are i'm finding it more and more and more and i'm focusing more and more on the questions and which questions and how to ask the questions and when to ask the questions and what kind of questions that allow the person to come to their own realizations. And it's conflict resolution training and education that has really cemented this in my head as the right way to go. And I've noticed in the trauma work how the questions have just been like magic. Mm-hmm. It's really, it's very exciting. It gets me mm-hmm. very excited to think about it because it just, you can see people, you can hear the wheels turning yes. and they come to it themselves and how much better to mm-hmm. come to it yourself. It has meaning for you. It has, you can feel it viscerally in your gut and you remember what you say better than what other yes. people say to you. So I've I've just found it to be really transformative for me. Mm-hmm. So you're really trying to create a, a connection of some form with the people with whom you engage. It's the most important thing. It's the, the connection is thing. the most important thing. Absolutely. And you know I've always been good at making fast connections in the emergency department. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know I see someone who looked uncomfortable and cold. I'll just go and get a warm blanket and I give it to them there. You've made that connection. What do they know? They know you care. They know you've noticed them. They know you're trying to address their pain, their discomfort. They know all that without you saying a word. Yes. And these are the kinds of connections. It doesn't have to be verbal. It, It can be just an acknowledgement. That person is there and they have suffering. Well, I, you know, I put all this under what I would identify as emotional intelligence. The connection with self-awareness. 
then with empathy and compassion mm -hmm. to create those connections. That's so true. It is. That piece is true. But there's just this underlying human nature piece, regardless of the EQ level in which and there's a it reminds me of a saying that goes something like they won't care what you know until they know that you care. So, so you're if you're not connect, you could have the most amazing information on this planet and and it won't matter if somebody's tuning you out. Um, so that's important though, yeah. So if I can play with that little mm -hmm. term, they won't care what you know, it's what you show. You know, you're showing yeah. that you care. And people so the nonverbal especially. Absolutely, and, and people especially that have gone through any type of traumatic event are especially sensitized. Like there are spidey senses. They can tell if you're BSing, if you're, if you're not, not genuine, if you're not mm -hmm. genuine. Yeah, or if you're doing this for yourself, for your own ego, or you think you're so bright and, and, and want to fix everybody, right? So, um, And they're also more sensitive. Like we're all hard hardwired for the negative and that's part of our that's part of our um, survival mm -hmm. um, things that mother nature has given us to survive but people who've gone through trauma um, are even more sensitized to the negative so they will pick up so quickly on on when it's all about your ego or you just want to show how much you know or whatever and they'll pick up on when you really are present with them and care about them. Mm -hmm. Or they'll even pick up on incompetence. So if they, they can think you're the nicest person with the best intentions, but if they don't think you could handle their pain, they won't share it with you. They'll protect you instead. Um, so it's, it's a very delicate um, type of relationship that, that play there for that connection. Yeah. And it, it really takes a sensitivity, and it's like a dance in a way. It's like you're responding to them, they're responding to you. And they're, for me, I feel honored to be, um, to be allowed to share in some of these really intensely personal, painful experiences with people. Mm -hmm. These are not things that people just share with anyone. So let, let's actually unpack in some way trauma what is trauma okay i'm ready for you because you know what yeah i usually don't make any notes for these things right yeah i usually just go off the top of my head but yeah special for you i feel privileged i'm you not should. sure i looked up trauma okay okay and i just finished a whole big six day course you know refresher in trauma counseling but i just went to google and it comes from the Greek, meaning a wound. And for me, this is so profound when it comes to trauma that you can use one word, wound, to describe trauma. And it's a great analogy to use physical trauma. And sometimes you are dealing with physical trauma. Sometimes you're just dealing dealing with it, not just, but you're dealing with emotional or intellectual, or intellectual mental, mental, spiritual, trauma. Yeah. and spiritual. it's so much easier for people to understand a yes. physical wound. Yes, and so it's something people can relate to. And sometimes the emotional wounds come with um, physical wounds, but when you're talking about a wound, you can ta be talking about anything from a paper cut 
that just heals and goes away on its own. It hurts at the time, mind you, but or to like a big gaping wound that never heals or something that heals over on top, but underneath. The scarring is still there. Scarring, yeah. And sometimes infection, inflammation, festering, and can spread to your whole body and kill you. So wounds are different and require different attention. Some require being open to the air. Most wounds do best when they're open to the air to let all the poison out. To bring it to the light. To bring, yes. And that's it what it is. Trauma actually causes toxic stress. We've now known about toxic traumatic stress for 40 years. We've been researching this. And we now know for a fact. Not us personally. No. No. Yeah, well, <laughs> <laughs> surprise. I should speak for myself. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, we know it kills brain cells. Yeah. So, literally. Um, so the wound and I love the wound analogy, by the yes, way. Yes, I love it too. And then I looked at more definitions and I found, um, I found, a, a definition of trauma from our very own Cam H, the, the center for addiction and mental health. Yes. And it, it goes like this. Trauma is the lasting emotional response that often results from living through a distressing event. Experiencing a traumatic event can harm a person's sense of safety, sense of self, and the ability to regulate emotions and navigate relationships. Long after the traumatic event occurs, people with trauma can often feel shame, helplessness, powerlessness, and intense fear. And I really felt this encapsulated very well the kind of work that we do. And the work that we do in conflict resolution as well that we need to be aware of um, when, pe when parties are interacting with each other, um, how the wounds that they've experienced that might be fresh wounds, how the way they show up in the, in, in the conflict can have a lot to do with trauma, and I don't think that as practitioners we're as aware of that as we should. So when individuals who are party to the process are being facilitated in some form, I mean, one of the, the main purposes is for people to express those lived experiences as it caused them concern that it's affected the relationship. And yes. so we want to go deeper to find out somewhat the roots of those experiences, people's affect and how they've been affected and they are affecting others. Mm -hmm. So as a third-party facilitator, what, do you, what are you saying there? Well, what I'm saying is that with our training and, and our methods, we tend to um, maybe not pay as much attention to what's really going on for the person underneath. Um, it depends on what kind of methods we use. It depends on the individual practitioner as the well. The individual practitioner and things that the individual practitioner might be experiencing for themselves might make it hard for them to pick up on what their parties might be going through because maybe they need to protect themselves from feeling whatever feelings are coming up from the traumatic material that's being presented 
Yeah, there's there's a lot of practitioners that have um, that are uncomfortable with pain. Actually, we live in a pain avoidance society. Uh, we try to make it go away. We wanna um, we wanna somehow give advice and cliches and. Um, and uh, I will even say there's lots of practitioners who are uh, emotion avoidant. Oh, absolutely. And Let alone the pain of avoidant. that. Yes, and proud of it. Yes. I went to a conference yes. where somebody asked a lawyer who does, you know, participates in, in mediations um, as a lawyer, and they were asked, he was on a panel, and he was asked, what do you look for in a mediator? What makes it, it, them a mediator that you choose? What's the qu- qualities What's or characteristics? What's the quality that you look for? And he said, I look for the ones who don't go anywhere near the emotions because they just wreck the whole thing and the and the parties get really emotional and we can't get anything settled Mm -hmm. which says to me that it's about the practitioner themselves and not for the individuals yeah and it's the way we've been trained too right some people we're not a lot of people aren't exactly comfortable in discussing things like that. So even our own, even counselors have um, issues around speaking quite um forthrightly so for example there's many counselors that still use euphemisms such as oh passed away um went somewhere else like things like that don't cut to the chase which is they've died yeah yeah and like you were saying before we need sunlight it needs to be stated it needs to be said but there's so much shame in our society and we're much better now than we were before a hundred years ago if you remember we were telling people oh just you you lost an important significant person in your life just pretend it didn't happen like they're gone now don't ever think about it we used to say these things and i think some people still say those Uh, absolutely we've come a long way but there's still so much shame there's and, and meanwhile what we do know from the decades of research is that trauma is everywhere uh, most of us have experienced some kind of trauma um, so that's part of the trauma-informed awareness piece and I think even though we've come a long way in some ways we are doing worse when it comes to that meaning what meaning that we are in a society where everything happens so quickly especially on our phones, and information is immediate, and technology in medicine and everywhere else makes things lightning fast, and people expect things to happen like this. And what I've noticed is, especially in healthcare, we have all kinds of fancy things and technologies and things that prolong life, mm-hmm. and, and we become more death avoidant and more pain avoidant, And the one thing that keeps deteriorating is our willingness to give people time to heal and the care that they need while they're taking the time to heal. I would add, in their own way. In their own way, using their resources. We are, we are, I've seen the healthcare system for the last 40 years and I've seen how it's changed. And now I've never seen it so unwilling to let people take any time at all to heal. And it's so troubling for me because 
we have to give things their time to come out in the right way in the timing that it's supposed to come out mm. if we rush these things we can we can spoil everything and i would say in an ideal world yes you know our systems are based on these quick fixes connected a lot with cost because the longer it takes the more costly it is to provide the service and support and this is why i and keep kept getting a, fired and there's a yeah. big gap <laughs> yeah. with the quality and, yeah. sorry go ahead and let's talk about burnout actually because yeah. this leads to also caregivers being in a position where they're running around trying to take care of vulnerable people, whether it's at a hospital or at different agencies, and they're not being taken care of. And the funny thing you say with costs is it's actually costing us more money. Um, this is the thing that in, people... In the long and run, even, yes. And mm -hmm. we deal with executives all the time. And a lot of executives have narcissistic flavorings to them because we reward and reinforce, you know, the Ego. egotistical, <laughs> who could be very charming and wonderful. And the way I talk to them, when, the second you realize that the emotional intelligence isn't there, I get to the cost part. So I you got to speak them, their language. Yeah, you got to speak their language. So they need to know that if they don't allow the space for their employees and staff to heal, their employees are just going to find it in a different right. way. Right, and I believe it's, you know, if they don't invest in the individual as an individual and their lived experiences, yes, you can save money here. It's going to have a greater consequential impact on the individual and they're therefore directly on the workplace, for example, with EAPs, employee assistance plans, and absenteeism, etc. And presenteeism, people that are actually the, there but not really there. They're not <laughs> totally actively checked there. out. Yeah, yeah, and I think I think you see a lot more executives than I do. Uh, I'm not sure how that worked out. I think it's it's good. Um, All from managing at the trauma department. So I yeah, says, yeah, so that's probably why. Thing, yeah. But what I tend to do is I, I focus on the human resources people and the, the people who are our contact people who are arranging for the services for the employees. And I never forget to address the humanity and the pain of the people who are trying to keep it all together for everyone else and make sure everyone else is taken care of. And a lot of the time, it's not acknowledged that they too mm -hmm. are human beings yeah. and they're affected and they feel things about what's going on. And um, I find that people really appreciate that. Well, ha hasn't your training, them. though, as a trauma counselor provided you with the skills to navigate the affects of other people's lived experiences? Yes. I'm being a bit facetious there. Yes, but the thing is you'd be surprised at how many counselors don't. Mm -hmm. They're there to, to see the employees and they stick to in their lane and they don't see the contact people as employees mm -hmm. and and the thing with excellent competent care caring hr or nurses or social workers it's never ever the incompetent ones that burn out it's never a professional from lawyers to doctors to anything it's always the ones that care and are highly competent that burn out so it's not the ones that need to get out of the profession anyway we're burning out our best 
because the not best do not have compassion fatigue they just don't yeah they don't they don't care well why don't you explain for us if you're responding to a call a contact to go to a an experience to facilitate something walk us through the engagement of that can you what 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 happens you show up and then what happens there's a variety of things depending on the situation, but let's just say, for, uh, for instance, let's say there's been a bank robbery. And so we usually are, our contact person is usually the bank manager or an HR person. And we go to the bank and um, the contact person sets us up in an office and it's us. busy. It's busy. So we are doing this on the fly. We are doing assessment of needs, getting yes. contacts, asking about what else has gone on in that organization. Mm -hmm. Has this been the first robbery in a long time or just have they or had have a they slew had, of yeah. them? You, you want context. All yeah. this context is So we're important. briefed yeah. on, on what's happened, who the um, employees are who are most affected. Perhaps one teller has had a gun held to their head. Um, perhaps they've even been injured. Um, all kinds of things may have happened. And they can tell us, you know, who they feel might be most at risk, who they feel would be most willing to talk. Or who's expressed uh, a need mm -hmm. or concern. Yeah, yeah. And, or who they're worried about but might need a little um, encouragement. Um, and, uh, they set us up in a room and, and we help with all that. We yeah. help them with all that, like uh, what letting the, them know, creating what the is, logistical yeah. conditions that need yes. to be uh, incorporated and, and letting mm -hmm. them know what to expect and what they can let their employees know to expect from us. And, um, it can be, we can do a group type of intervention it's where, which is, can be very powerful in the right circumstances and at, in the right timing. Um, and we can do individual one-on-one -on -one sessions, which is mostly what I do, I think. And we can do walkabouts as well. If people are going about their, their work yeah. and going about their day, just going around, seeing how people are. There might be small clusters in the lunchroom or something that we can then just go and, and informally talk to them about these things. We and bring we'll handouts anyway. um, on, on various topics that they can take with them that, where they can, you know, refer to later. Um, so uh, a lot of times it will be the, if the teller who is still there or comes back, if someone has been, you know, the one who's been held up, I do probably the most work with, with them. Um, and with that feeling of fear, um, at, at their life being in danger and, and very effective interventions with them. Yeah, and they're so varied. They're so we've been anywhere from manufacturing floors to I've spent time at mines, to uh, military, police, paramedics, uh, finance. So there's such a um, in and it and again it's so complex. Uh, 
that some require, some organizations require us to be there over weeks. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a horrible accident that I'll never forget um, at a manufacturing plant, and the person's entire religious and cultural traditions and significance that was important, it was all brought into the factory and where the accident happened, the fatality happened, they allowed the family to be able to do whatever was symbolic to them and in that healing process. So there's some organizations that allow for amazing things to happen organically. And there's some organizations that want to control everything. So it really does depend on leadership. It always depends on leadership. Absolutely. And they're the ones who just want to be able to tick off the box that they had someone come and they did the appropriate thing. And I've gone places where they haven't even wanted to give me a private space yeah. to talk to people. It's, I look at leadership like parenting. So you're either a really good parent or really bad, somewhere in between. Um, because it really is about providing. And that'll, that'll resonate in the workplace, too, in terms of the culture and the conditions that people feel connected with or are going through to how they connect with that workplace How would you say that uh, the participants to a conflict resolution process are affected when the practitioner, the third party there, is not necessarily being mindful of the trauma that's being expressed and experienced in the process? Either one of you. Well, I I think what parties in a a process will do if if, if they're not being acknowledged on that level, a number of things. They'll either shut down completely and zone out because what is happening in the process is not really relevant to them is not getting at what the conflict is all about Um, they may yell louder and say more outrageous things and and in an effort to be heard in an effort for their pain to to be you know, if if no one's hearing you, you yell louder, right? Well, frustration builds. Out of frustration. And the, it might not even be on a conscious level. Um, and the the conflict may just escalate because nobody is feeling like their their primary needs are being addressed. Or, or even the manner in which people are presenting their points of view, their perspectives. Yeah. So the media will say, oh, that person's very positional adversarial Mm -hmm. and it becomes even more pronounced as the process goes on rather than being reframed as a shifting from negative to a more hopeful or positive opportunity why is that person just so stuck in their ways Mm -hmm. and we're very we're very patterned as human beings we need routine and and that goes the, the same thing with our coping strategies a lot of the ways we cope and uh function in this world is learned when we were young so if there was an environment where that learning was stunted because again we learn in relation our our very brain has developed over millennia um, to to be in relationships 
Um, so we're highly sensitized to, to the people around us, particularly when we're young. So any kind of maladaptive um, coping that we have taken along from there, it usually stays. So a lot of what we see is when people are triggered, if there's certain things in the environment uh, where the mediator, if they're creating even nuances of that, it will incite. Um, because no matter how logical people are, our nervous system knows the traumas. They know those nuances in that environment. And our body literally starts reacting. So their emotions are a physical thing more than a mental thing because we feel them in our body first, mostly the chest. So people just go into automatic mode, right? So some people's automatic, their go-to emotion is anger or some sometimes withdrawing. Um, so that's what people, they'll do their go-to thing when they feel like they're not heard. And yes, it can look like stubborn or... Mm -hmm. um, and that's why we pay so much attention in dispute resolution to the perception of bias or the perception of taking sides, um, of not being neutral. Because if, if a party perceives even the slightest bit, even if it's not what's in the, me the mediator's head, um, that the person is taking sides or not hearing them or not able to understand or listen to them or, or is blaming them or criticizing them or whatever, that can set off a trauma response if they've lived through somewhere where there's been intense blame and shame and and pain around that um and i i think that that's one of the biggest reasons why there's so much of a focus on that well uh, you know perception in my view can be more powerful than actual yes absolutely. it's how people process their moments and how they make sense of it their way even if our intention was not to do so mm -hmm. that's the reality let's just ask about what do you see as humor in terms of playing a role here with uh, trauma? I think humor is so, so very vital in this work. Um, not, and for the practitioner themselves as well. Uh, but in terms with a, with a client, uh, the humor needs to be led with the client. So it's it's different for me. Go, oh, that is so funny what you just saw. It needs to come from the client. They need to create So do you have a way of humor. how you... Uh invite that or offer there that? is there is there's there is like peaks and valleys in any kind of conversation um and again it's allowing it's being able to allow that to happen so we say a lot of times less is more so just allowing somebody to um if you feel again when you're connected with your client you feel um not not only are you seeing them but you're literally feeling if there's a lull in that moment and you allow the client to have maybe some have a, fun yeah. with it a little moment of light a mm -hmm. little moment where their burden um is lifted a little yeah. bit and they can feel a little bit of normalcy like things can be okay we can have a moment of levity um uh and i think what you say is right on the i know what you say is right on the money um i find that a little self-deprecating humor yes um, Which means basically making one of yes making, making fun, fun of, of oneself, oneself. Mm -hmm. yeah 
is is helpful because it it's not construed by yeah. the client as blaming or minimizing or belittling or making light of yeah. their pain and a nice well timed well timed and and you know what even if it's awkward and you make a mistake acknowledge it you can acknowledge it or you're human too aren't you yes but but i have found that even when i've like flagellated myself over something stupid I've said I found that usually the the client hasn't noticed remembered mm -hmm. felt bad about it because of the love with which I am treating them at the time they can recognize that what I'm doing is I'm doing with love and care for them so what does this converse having this conversation mean to each of you starting with you Joanna I think this conversation is so important and uh, we I wish we could talk about it more and uh, this setting is great um, and I do actually I talk about things all the time out there uh, but part it two is, yeah I'm I'm <laughs> I'm lobbying for part two of wow. this conversation already. already already wow we've just scratched the surface I think and and when it's brought to people's attention especially practitioners out there to be just to be aware yes and and it's not even so just for people with big t traumas um it's if you have a way of interacting with your clients that is compassionate caring mindful of how they are feeling and how they might feel you don't even have to know about what traumas have gone on you yeah. are treating everyone in a way that is trauma-informed, and it's the safest way to go. I've always promoted about, as a third-party person, that we're responsible for creating the conditions for people to connect with in order to connect with their lived experiences to then be able to go to those places and spaces to be able to express, especially about feelings. Yes. So we uh, have to close out. See? We need a part two. That was quick. Yeah, you see? It, and you liked part it. Two. I know you liked it, Joanna. <laughs> I did. I enjoy myself with Joni so much. Me too. You know, I was thinking of like just asking you to come back without her. <laughs> How do you Never. think that might be for you? No. Or for her? You wouldn't do that? Never. would be sad. Never. I wouldn't do that anyways. I know. I just want to, you know. Poke me a little. The elf. Yeah. Yeah, well, yeah. The elf. Uh, so what does that imply? You're you've got a commitment here. Or something? I'm important. Okay, in <laughs> one's essential, own mind. Essential, essential elf, the essential elf. That could be another training. <laughs> okay. Yeah, me and Joni could just do it without Greg. Yeah. So cool. See oh how far God. you get with that one. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so we got to say goodbye. Thank you very much for coming tonight and Thank sharing you for with us, me. informing us. Thank you. Likewise. Oh. As always, Yodala, the best. All right. We will have take two, part two. Well, we'll figure that out. You've been listening to Mediation Station on CHHA, 1610 AM. So tune in next week for another conversation. Bye-bye.